Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, Hamilton City Council turns down a tax hike to pay for road repairs. Hamilton International Airport seeing some positive gains. And China demanding that the U.S. end its extradition request for the CFO of Huawei. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday there was a lively discussion at Hamilton City Hall. They were into the uh, capital budget discussions there. Now, in the last couple of days, of course, we've talked about some of the work that needs to be done at First Ontario Centre uh, with the ice making and things of that nature. That came up, but also the condition of roads. And uh, City Council debated for hours about whether or not to raise taxes to pay for more road repairs because there just doesn't seem to be enough work, enough money in the budget, or, or at least they're not getting it done. I, I, it seems to be one of the number one complaints from people saying, yeah, when are you going to fix my road? And then, of course, we had the incident last year. Main West had to be redone, uh, shave and pave, as they say, because it was in horrendous condition. But council voted yesterday not to raise taxes to pay for more road repairs. John Paul Danko is the uh, councillor for Ward 8 up on Hamilton Mountain. He joins us on the program to talk about uh, the debate and the end result on this. John Paul, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me on again, Bill. Listen, we, you were right into your wheelhouse here. I mean, this is what you, you did before you got into politics. You're all about engineering and things of this nature. So maybe maybe give us the professional opinion on this, uh, because everybody say, what is it that with the roads here? Why are they in such bad repair? That's right. I, I've spent the last 20 years of my career as a professional civil engineer building, uh, designing and building roads and bridges. So this is one area that I, I happen to know fairly well. And when we're talking about roads in particular, we're talking about asphalt, and the, usually the, the complaints are potholes or unevenness of the road. And that's uh, really, it's, it's a, a function of where we live, where we have cold winters and uh, wet, warm summers, and uh, the water seeps, seeps into the asphalt. Um, a lot of people don't realize that asphalt is actually permeable, and when there's a crack or the water gets in there, in the winter, it freezes, and that's how you end up with a pothole. So most of the time when we're talking about roads, I think that's the impression that people have when they leave their home, they're going to work or their business, and they get a bit of a bumpy ride. It's, it's often the condition of the asphalt that's top of mind. Now, I used the example of Maine West from a year or so ago, and that was maybe the worst-case scenario. But it, this is pretty mm -hmm. much a, a problem we're going to face. Is it every spring, I guess, during the thaw? Well, it's an enormous problem, and it goes far beyond uh, just the condition of asphalt because what we also do is put a lot of salt on our roads and that salt is uh, corrosive to any reinforcing steel that's in any of the retaining walls, bridges, culverts, anything that uh, is beside the road is um, really attacked by the amount of salt that we put on the road and it really limits the lifespan of the infrastructure that we build in, uh, in a cold climate. So if you go somewhere like... Um, like um, Arizona, they don't have these same problems because they don't put salt on the roads and they don't have those freeze-thaw cycles. So the amount of infrastructure need that's out there is, is absolutely enormous. And, uh, you know, when we talk about the infrastructure deficit, I mean, that is a real thing. There is, there is a profound need um, for that extra money, for sure. I mean, we're talking, I, this is obviously about, you know, what happens in the thaw and, and, and these sorts of things and potholes, mm -hmm. and, and it's it's very instructive. But uh, there's another element to this, which I'm sure came up in the debate yesterday, and that's just wear and tear. I mean, uh, uh, given what you've just described about, well, this is where we live and this is the kind of weather we get, so we're going to have to learn to deal with this. What What is the average life cycle of a road? If, in other words, if you do a full repair, not just a shave and pave, but a full repair, 
and resurfacing on a road. How long do you expect it to last in this climate? Well, it depends on the on the traffic, um, but generally, say a main arterial road, you're looking for a minor maintenance every uh, around every 15 years, uh, with a full replacement would be around every 30 years. So that would be typical for a fairly busy main arterial route that has bus traffic, trucks, and quite a heavy car traffic. Uh, when you get into the neighborhoods, uh, really, what really um, uh, digs up the roads and causes a lot of the problems is just the weight of the vehicles. So the, the smaller and the lighter the vehicles you have. So once you get into a neighborhood, you're talking mostly just personal uh, cars. Uh, roads can last quite a bit longer. Um, so 25, 30 years would be you know somewhere in that neighborhood before you need to do a lot of uh, re- rehab on those roads. Yeah, and I guess the extreme example of that would be down in the North End. I mean, as long as I've lived here all my life, and Burlington Street <laughs> has never been in good repair. But I mean, every time you're down there, there's 5,018 wheelers going up and down there. That's got to have an impact. Exactly, and and that's where you see you have heavy truck traffic um, from the factories and the industry that's down there. And that road, uh, the mixes that they would use for the asphalt for that road would be specifically designed for that. But there's a limit to what you can do when you have that really heavy vehicular traffic. All right, listen, get into the engineering aspect of this and, and build us a better mousetrap. Since we have limitations here, uh, and asphalt seems to be the, the, you know, the, the, the topping of choice when we're doing road resurfacing, are, are there, is there any work out there? Are there any innovative ideas about alternatives to this that might be a little more practical? Sure, concrete. Um, but there's a cost associated with that. Okay. So, uh, when you look at, uh, I think the, when they did the 407, uh, they chose to go with a concrete road surface because it lasts much, much longer. It's not reinforced except for at the uh, joints. So you don't have that same um, concrete uh, from the effect from the salt. But uh, for city roads, it's, it's simply not cost effective for us to pave all our roads with concrete. It's, it's, is, that, is that the upfront cost? Is that the problem? That's right. Um, concrete is much more expensive than uh, than hot mix asphalt, and we tried to prioritize. So when we talked about something like Burlington Street, that would be a good candidate for putting in some um, concrete paving where you know the truck traffic is heaviest. Same thing with on bus routes, maybe where you have the same heavy traffic on the same route. Um, but when we're talking about residential streets, it's it's just simply not practical to expect that we're going to pave every road with with concrete. Okay, so let's let's get into the discussion you guys had yesterday because I mean all of the stuff that we've just talked about here, I guess, was all on the on the table, uh, and, and there was a, a an idea put forward that look at we're falling behind, and we all know about the, our infrastructure deficit, and that includes roads and bridges clearly. Uh, and, and someone suggested, and I guess some of your colleagues suggested, maybe the best way to do this is just increase taxes. I think it was would have been about $17 per household, I guess. That would be the average to, to go ahead on this. Go down that road, excuse the bad pun, uh, for just a second. <laughs> would, would that do much at all to try to solve the problem you're facing? It was, uh, it was a really important discussion to have because the, the gist of the discussion that, uh, that I got from the city manager and from the, our senior management team is that the budget that we have in place right now with a, a 0.5% increase for capital, um, our capital budget is just maintaining the status quo. So we are not able to make any improvements with that. And we know uh, long term that we are facing an enormous infrastructure deficit and we are not planning ahead. Our, our budget is 
quite frankly, it's not sustainable um, for the future. We're not making any inroads into that infrastructure deficit with the status quo budget that we had on the table. So that's where that discussion came from and where Councillor Clark's motion um, was born out of is trying to actually be proactive and um, make a dent into that long-term infrastructure deficit. So therein lies the problem then. I mean, with that in mind then, John Paul, uh, if we're not putting a dent in that, I mean, if we're just kind of maintaining that list and not doing a whole lot about it, uh, d- does that hasten the possibility that we're going to have, uh, I don't want to say a catastrophic situation, not like what they had in Quebec a few years ago where bridges were actually collapsing, but but obviously the wear and tear and the life cycle is going to be, sh- I-, I would think, shortened by that. That's right, and and it's um, it's not so much a ca- you know, that we're worried about a catastrophic failure, it's it's a level of service issue, so that the you know, our infrastructure deteriorates and it decreases the level of service that we're used to. But the problem is that when we're talking about the infrastructure deficit, we're not just talking about roads and bridges. We're talking about everything else that the city owns and maintains, such as recreation facilities. Oh, like the arena. Exactly. Waste management, long-term care facilities, our parks. So, our infrastructure deficit is it's so much more than just the roads, which tend to be top of mind when we're talking about infrastructure. So with that kind of a challenge, and you know, uh, we've talked about this before, you know, as, as a member of city council, you are going to be under enormous pressure to keep taxes down. I mean, a lot of people want you to reduce taxes. I don't know if that's even feasible, given some of the challenges that cities in North America are facing these days. But, but how do you rationalize that, that burning desire from taxpayers to say, keep my costs down, there's the ability to pay that has to be factored in, with the practical side, especially with your professional training uh, in engineering, to say, look, if we don't uh, do something about this, uh, we are going to face major problems. It's certainly a balance that we have to take into account as we talk about this. And, and that's why, again, it's so important to have this discussion. Because there is that balance between we know what we need to do moving forward. We need to be very, very strategic with our tax dollars. And I think that's one of the the arguments that I tried to make yesterday, that when we talk about being strategically investing this money, um, it's not necessarily roads that are the top priority from a strategic perspective. And then also, you know, recognizing that we do have this long-term problem and it, it does need to be proactively addressed. Um, and that's something that I think we need to address with our, our long-term budgeting. So we, we do have a multi-year budget subcommittee, and I think this is something that we need to, um, to really talk about in much more depth um, in that subcommittee and then come up with a long-term plan that is viable and also tries to you know, make sure that we recognize that we are paying some very high taxes in the province of Ontario and the city of Hamilton. And I know that the the discussion, you know, started to sway into different areas. I know a couple of your colleagues were talking about affordable housing, and, and, and that's obviously a priority. We know that. Uh, and by the way, to that point, the city, of course, you know, last term of council dedicated $50 million to that. And so we're, we're you know, you've, I, I'm not saying you can check that box off yet, but I mean, council is aware of this and they put it on their radar. But uh, the reality here is, and, and this is where I you have to pull back a little bit from the philosophical discussion sometimes, uh, roads aren't going anywhere because we're going to be with using automobiles, whether it's public transportation or private vehicles, for a long time to come. So I know that there are some people that would like to move this road thing way down that priority list. But at the same time, you've got to get from point A to point B in cities. 
Right. And, and I, I think it speaks to what our priorities are as a city. So, I mean, I, I certainly recognize that roads are a very important part of what makes life in the city Hamilton livable. Um, but at the same time, I, I think it's important not to lose fact of the, of, of the uh, lose sight of the fact that we have all kinds of other infrastructure that has very severe needs as well. And when we're talking about a tax increase, a, a 0.5% um, tax hike to pay for roads, is it necessary that that is the best does is is it the best business case to invest that just in roads, or should that be invested in all infrastructure? And I think that's a conversation that we weren't able to have um, to the fullest extent yesterday. So that, I think that's partially why that that motion to raise the uh, the point five percent wasn't successful. Well, and and I know that at some point during that debate, you're going to have to get into the the realm of of senior levels of government. Uh, and sustainable funding, uh, not one-time funding for special projects, but sustainable funding, not unlike what they have in the United States, who, of course, as we know, have gone through their budget concerns and pressures over the years. The, the recession was a lot worse there than it was here. Yet through it all, the federal state governments there maintained uh, funding for cities, for infrastructure improvements. Uh, and, and we don't seem to get that message up here. Every time we, we get that discussion, and I know that you can do this through FCM, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, or AMO at the provincial level, uh, the, the, the federal government and the provincial government just seem to back away and say, well, you know, we can't really afford it. But at some point, I think the discussion has to be, can we afford not to do this? That's right, and I think that's a great point that um, over the years, a lot of these infrastructure costs have been downloaded, especially from the province. I mean, the MTO used to, the Ministry of Transportation, used to operate and maintain um, a huge network of roads, and they've really scaled that back over the years and downloaded those roads to the municipality. So a lot of those costs, um, we can't dig out of the total infrastructure deficit on our own as a city. We need partnerships from the federal government and from the provincial government. And as a, a dense urban centre with commercial businesses and industry, um, actually, the city of Hamilton is uh, in a much better position than a lot of the rural communities. And rural communities around Ontario are really, really struggling with their infrastructure because they simply cannot afford it without um, having grants or, or funding from upper levels of government. And at the same time, in the city of Hamilton specifically, um, we have to be responsible with our budget and realize that if that money is not coming from the province or the federal government, um, that we are going to have to address this ourselves. We can't just put our heads in the sand and pretend that our infrastructure deficit doesn't exist. It's something that either we're going to have to fix on our own or, you know, in the meantime, we'll try to get funding from upper levels of government. But we have to be prepared that that might not be coming forward. Uh, I wouldn't hold my breath. <laughs> we, we, we can always hope, but uh, I wouldn't hold my breath. John Paul, thanks as always. I really appreciate your insight into this. Thanks for the time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. You betcha. John Paul Danko, of course, uh, counsel for Ward 8, uh, as they have the debate and uh, continue the debate about how to fix the roads and other infrastructure here in this community. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We got some good news yesterday from John C. Monroe Hamilton International Airport, uh, and it's all about the amount of business and the numbers that are happening there. 
And uh, to talk about this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Kathy Puckering, who is the president and CEO of John C. Monroe Hamilton International. Good to see you again, Kath. Good morning. How and, are you? And Dina Carlucci is here, there, who is uh, the director of marketing. Your job's easy now. This is all good news stuff. <laughs> <laughs> all good you, stuff. You're just looking at all these big numbers yeah, and say, yeah, yeah I'll Keep it that. coming. Yeah. Keep it coming, though. Yeah. <laughs> this, this, is, uh, this is a good day, though. I mean, uh, we, we've had some concerns and some challenges in the past. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about the numbers. Uh, so let's, we'll do passenger first, and then we can get into the cargo and the things. Uh, excellent. Well, we are proud to announce that we had a 21% increase in our passenger traffic last year. Uh, that comes after a successful 2017 year as well, where we saw an 80% increase. So, so you guys are on a roll. We are on a roll, mm-hmm. and it's all because of uh, low-cost service that has entered the Hamilton market. Uh, well, and that was always a challenge because uh, you know, we had great numbers for a while there. And, of course, Ward Air had to do some rejigging, and that had an impact on what we were doing. And WestJet, I'm sorry, Ward Air, I'm going back too far now. <laughs> but, uh, but but when that happened, it was, a, well, where are you going to find carriers? Uh, you've got a lot of carriers now. I mean, obviously, the word is out there within the industry that this is a pretty good place to do business. Well, you're, you're so correct. And we've had, you know, scheduled passenger activity as long as we've been operating the airport. But we've seen some cycles where it's, you know, it's grown and then it, it's reduced. Um, but, but a lot of that stuff was within the whole industry, wasn't it? Uh, definitely industry-wide. And what's happened most recently is low-cost carriers are entering the Canadian market. They're seeing successes abroad and in the United States. And Hamilton is, you know, strategically located in a large populated area. And utilizing a secondary airport just aligns to the low-cost carrier strategy to uh, make it easy, make travel simple, utilize airports that have extra capacity, and keep costs low so they can give low fares to the travelers. Well, and and we always get into this, but I think it's worthy of repeating it every time. It's it's all about convenience. I mean, you know, air travel is... It's it's a pain in the butt if you have to fly out of Pearson. It's a lovely airport, a huge facility, but, I mean, it takes you an hour and a half to get there, probably another hour and a half to find a parking spot, uh, and then about a day and a half to find, go walk you into the terminal, uh, and on and on it goes. And then, of course, that when you're finished your trip, you got to get your luggage. And it's it's almost a day of, of travel just to get there and back. Uh, I, I love about the fact that when we fly out of Hamilton, John C. Monroe, uh, usually about 20, 25 minutes after the plane lands, I'm home. I mean, and it's just that convenient, and that's simply because of you've got a very efficient operation there. Well, thank you, and that's exactly what we want to hear. Um, having a secondary airport in this area actually just gives consumers the choice. So if you want to go down the street to another airport, you can. Um, if you want to use a simple airport that's easy to access, you choose Hamilton. And that is one of the, the, the niche you know, market opportunities that we have is to provide a choice to consumers to make it easy to travel. Uh, the the marketing is is interesting in this because I know that a lot of folks uh, at, at the, when you see some of these numbers, Dina, they're going to think, "Wow, that's the sun destinations because they've got all those flights." And that that's certainly part of it. That's part of the success sure, story yeah. here. But but as as I'm there, it, whether you know it's a, it's a flight from from Calgary or someplace else, these places are packed. I mean, people, business people, people that are there for vacations are using this as opposed to some of the bigger airports. Absolutely. Like if I think about what Swoop did when they opened up Abbotsford nonstop, mm-hmm. they connected the Greater Toronto area through Hamilton over to Greater Vancouver through Abbotsford. So of course people are gravitating to the convenience of those low cost fares and connecting across Canada to do so. And then Swoop went ahead and started up some U.S. service in October into Florida and into Las Vegas. So it makes you question, do I need to go to Buffalo to get those low-cost fares? No, I've got a made-in-Canada solution here in my own backyard that I can use through Hamilton. 
So it's these types of um, offerings that continue to mount with carriers like Swoop and soon-to-be Norwegian that allow Canadians to just second-guess, do I really need to go through other airports? And, as, and while I'm doing so, save a dollar uh, in doing it by doing it through Hamilton. And, and for the, I guess, the traveler that does a lot of traveling, they, they already know about this, and they already know that there should and could be alternatives to this. Uh, that if you're going to fly to Chicago, for instance, you don't have to go to O'Hare because it's a pain there. There's a secondary airport. Uh, I, I remember when you guys made the announcement about Abbotsford, and uh, I, a friend of mine said, well, who wants to go to Abbotsford? I said, anybody that wants to go to Vancouver wants to go to Abbotsford because it's, it's a lot less hassle, yeah. and, and it's a short ride over to, to Vancouver to wherever you want to be there. And a significant savings. It, well, right? exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. And you, you've really kind of grabbed that market, haven't you? We have, and it's been partnering with the airlines that have, you know, made that decision to enter our market to provide those services. So those are incredible numbers, and, and we've seen a lot of this happening. Uh, the European stuff always intrigued me because I know that there have been attempts in the past about this, and they've, they've been wildly successful from a consumer standpoint. Uh, some of the businesses have had some problems over in Europe, but you, you seem to have got some solid partners now. Well, uh, starting the end of March, yeah. we will be introducing Norwegian and starting a daily flight for the summer season uh, into Dublin, and we're we're hopeful that that will open the, the door for a, additional growth. Yeah, uh, we've been talking about that around the kitchen table, too. That's still on the bucket list. I think I'm about the only member of my family that hasn't been back over there. Uh, so, uh, we, and, and now that you got direct flights out of Hamilton, this is going to be fabulous. And, and I don't want to, by the way, give the, the Sun Destinations a short shift because, I mean, that, that's a major, major uh, asset, I think, for this airport, isn't it? I think with the cold temperatures that we're seeing out there yeah, uh, yesterday today, today <laughs> let's let's get out of town for sure. Um, no, the, the the likes of Air Transit and Sunwing continue to roll out increases in their offering as well, and so the Sun Vacation Package continues to be continues to be very popular with Canadian consumers looking for all inclusives. And then Swoop's also dipping their toe into this space because they started the Montego Bay, Jamaica, Cancun, and Puerto Vallarta flights into Mexico uh, just in the last month. Um, and what we're noticing is that customers are also selecting Airbnb or vacation rentals that they're booking directly themselves while they're marrying that up with the airfare that Swoop's offering to those destinations. There's another side to this, too, that I like, maybe a lot of folks don't think about. But with the success, and still, I guess, focusing on the passenger traffic, uh, there are a number of other businesses that are popping up as partners here. Uh, I mean, you, you need more transportation options, for instance, people coming and going from the airport. Uh, and, and you've got some of those over there. Uh, Best Buy's got a, a, a shop up there right now. So, And this is stuff that wasn't there a few years ago. But basically, because of the demand from, from your passengers and your consumers, these people are saying, look, there's a market there for us. Oh, most definitely. And what we're seeing right now is, you know, ground transportation. People are finding alternate ways to get to the airport. So how can we provide, you know, additional product for them to use? We're working with ground transportation companies now to expand the offering. We've just signed uh, an agreement with Lyft to provide some ride share. And of course, we're, we're working very closely with, with Uber as well. Um, food and beverage and, you know, giving the, the traveler the ability to spend the, to spend and to, to purchase while they're transiting through the airport. So we are expanding our offering. We had some successes last year with food and beverage. Um, just wait and see what's going to happen in 2019. Um, and again, we've got duty-free at the airport as well, so expanding their offerings to provide, you know, more product to the traveler. And with these other airlines and, and the frequency in which they're coming into the airport right now, uh, support services at the airport, I guess, obviously are going to be impacted by this in a, in a positive way. There's, there's more of that going on now. Oh, definitely. And um, we're actually seeing a lot of interest right now on land development. So to support our passenger and our cargo airlines, 
you require maintenance facilities. So we're working with a few partners right now for expansion of, of, of hangars and maintenance repair overhaul. Um, that's increasing jobs. So we're very happy to report, you know, last year we updated our economic impact study, 3,500 jobs at the airport. You know, we're likely one of the top 10 employers in the city of Hamilton. And then in, in addition to that, you've got uh, support services to all the airlines for ground handling, for fueling, onboard concession and food offering. So um, as the passenger and the cargo grow, so do all those ancillary opportunities. Well, let's talk about cargo, uh, because that's what I usually hear, because uh, we're not too far from the airport, and, and I can hear the comings and goings uh, into the evening, especially in the overnight period. Uh, and I see the results of that, obviously, with uh, the, the, you know, the pure later trucks that come whizzing down the 403 after that. Uh, still a great success story. It has been for many, many years, but you're really building on that success with cargo. Oh, definitely. And, and Hamilton Airport is the number one domestic overnight cargo airport for express movement of goods. Um, with the increases in e-commerce e and online shopping, we're seeing all of our partners um, expand their businesses and future growth opportunities are huge. Over the past two years, we've grown our business 20% and directly linked to the online shopping experience and moving products through the airport. Um, you may not, you know, be aware, but we actually even have Amazon and Air Canada Cargo. Uh, while their planes aren't aren't in Hamilton, the goods are actually moving through our facility, and we're working with all of our partners on what you know their peak season for winter 2019 is going to look like as they're you know getting ready already to expand their their businesses in Hamilton. Do people connect the dots on that, Dina? To understand, but I mean, online shopping is growing. I mean, it's still a small percentage of the market, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. there's there's steady growth there. And I don't know if I know anybody that isn't doing it, at least a little bit of it these days. Yep. But, you know, if they, they order that ottoman or if they order something from Amazon, then it probably came to Hamilton Airport and was put on a truck and taken to their house. Exactly. I think it's a lot of that behind-the-curtain secret, yeah. if you will, that people aren't realizing that if it's moving by air, it is likely coming through Hamilton just because of its cargo profile and the well, fact that it, we're if, a 24-7 operation. Yeah, if it came two days after you ordered it, yeah. it probably came here by air. Yeah, yeah. So it's, um, no, it's an amazing piece of our business and it actually optimizes our business 24-7 because what we're doing for the economy by night and for consumers by night, we counter that with our passenger complement during the day. So we're fully, fully uh, utilizing our infrastructure 24-7 because of, of how we're set up. It's almost two worlds, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a daytime Hamilton Airport and a nighttime Hamilton Airport. Oh, most definitely. And if you're there day or night, it's 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 very interesting to, to watch what is going on. It's just ex exciting at 2 o'clock in the morning as it is at 8 o'clock in the morning when passengers are leaving the airport. Yeah. Do you transition at all, I mean, from one to the other? I mean, because I, 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 like I say, I've, I've, the, the latest flight I've seen coming in there is about midnight, I, and, and that was one of the ones from Calgary about a few months ago, I guess it was. But uh, but obviously you've got to get ready for the cargo stuff that's coming in. At the, I mean, that's happening anytime anyway, but that, there's a real focus on that and I know that there's uh, uh, you were talking about the number of people that are employed there and that number swells considerably at nighttime because you need hands-on to get this stuff moving definitely and what we're seeing right now is we are utilizing the airport 24 7 there is really no longer any quiet time at the airport as our cargo activity is winding down around four or five in the morning we're actually starting to see you know the passengers arriving actually earlier um, we've got 3 a.m. people arriving in order to get on that 545 first flight out in the morning so we are definitely maximizing our utility to the best of its ability do a little crystal balling here with these numbers uh, again this is good news and the industry is aware of this I mean they see these numbers as well 
Uh, you've attracted some great new businesses over the last three or four years, especially. And as you mentioned, Norwegian will be coming on board in just a few weeks, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you see in the future? And I know you can't make any announcements right now, but I mean, it, it, things are looking pretty positive at this stage. Well, we've we've got about nine million passenger or nine million people that are in our catchment area, and we're also hopeful that the low cost service will repatriate the two million passengers across the border every year. We're also seeing a lot of United States license plates in our parking lot, which it means that travelers are actually coming this way to get on those flights. So, with the low cost service that is coming in the market, Swoop will be you know adding additional frequencies to domestic uh, destinations this summer. They also will be keeping some of their U.S. Uh, service and international service throughout the summer so for the first time ever we'll have year-round service outside of the uh, outside of Canada's perimeter those contributing to additional passengers traveling through add Norwegian and the market is ready for expansion so it it's promising there's a, an interesting tie-in with the European market and I'm going to include the UK with that uh, there's a, a great interest here because I know that, as we mentioned in the past, there's been a number of, of, of attempts to do this in the past, and, and they've always been successful. The people just seem to love this, and it ties in very nicely with the low-cost airlines over in, in Europe and in the U.K. Well, opening up our market uh, in March into into Ireland will give passengers the choice to continue to fly mm-hmm. um, elsewhere, connecting flights into Europe, and just continuing to grow that product. Uh, we're hopeful that Norwegian will, you know, next year look at Hamilton and expand those routes, and we'll continue to work to push that effort forward. Well, I know that uh, when my son was living in Dublin some years ago, I mean, uh, you know, the, the connections to go over and say, hey, we're going to Amsterdam for the weekend. And, right. And it was, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with the, the Brexit stuff and everything, but at the same time, uh, it was it was easy, and and once you have access to that, it's a great jump off point for credit connections to just about anywhere else you want to go in Europe. And Bill, if I can add, like the fares to cross the pond to Dublin with Norwegian, there's fares as low as two oh nine Canadian one way taxes in. So all you have to do is get yourself to Dublin as a hub, and whether you connect with Norwegian Airlines on their network or you connect with other carriers like Ryanair through all of Europe, you have a really uh, attractive cost proposition there to have a European summer holiday. So it's just a really neat um, recipe for Hamilton this summer in terms of, yes, we're opening up the transatlantic market, we're going to have daily Dublin service, but it could mean Dublin and beyond for customers in this area. Well, and that's the reaction uh, that, that I, I'm hearing from an awful lot of people that already know about that. And I'll go back to my son's experience. You know, hey, we've got to go spend the weekend in Frankfurt yeah. or Hamburg or someplace like that. Or, uh, and, and you're back and forth. It's almost like a commuter flight because it's not really that far. And it's sure. very inexpensive. But to get to Dublin is, is the key. And, and as you say, you're offering a low-cost fare. That's a win-win. Mm-hmm. Well, this is fabulous. Uh, it's good to see, uh, you know, because we talked about some of the challenges that the industry was facing over the last little while. The economy uh, is picked up. People still want to get from point A to point B. Uh, and cost and convenience. I mean, it, th- those were always the two things you always talked about, Kathy. And, and, and obviously that's what you can offer that, frankly, a lot of other airlines or airports can't do. Oh, most definitely. And uh, I just want to acknowledge that, you know, we're, you know, it's it's been quite a while. We've been persistent with our, you know, approach with our airlines to get service here. And we will continue to move forward to be that global gateway um, into Canada for affordable travel and movement of goods. Well, uh, our friend Ron Foxcroft always uh, wants me to remind people when we have these conversations that this wouldn't happen without an extremely talented board of directors. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> no, but really, there's, there's been great community support for this. I mean, obviously, yes. th- from the, the folks that are running the operation, but at the same time, uh, the, there's a local flavor to this and a local drive to make this thing work, and it's really paying off. 
It's it, it definitely is, and uh, the city of Hamilton owns this airport, and we can't be we are so proud to be the operator on behalf of the city and continuing to move forward as an economic engine, a driver of jobs, and continuing to prov- provide choice to the community for affordable travel. Well, a great news story. Congratulations. And uh, I, I guess the best way to wrap this up is keep it up. Oh, thank you very we much. <laughs> we will. <laughs> Kathy Puckering and uh, Dina Carlucci from uh, John C. Monroe Hamilton International Airport. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's an interesting twist and, and well, one that I think we need some clarity on right now. Uh, the Chinese government is demanding that the United States end its extradition request for the CFO of Huawei, who, of course, was arrested in Vancouver some uh, weeks ago now. Uh, this has turned into quite the uh, diplomatic uh, mess now. We'd be involving the United States, Canada certainly, and the Chinese government. Uh, we also hear today that uh, the United States has apparently informed Canada that uh, they are going to officially begin extradition, extradition uh, proceedings. Joining us to add some clarity to this and talk about this is uh, Joseph Newberger. Joe, of course, is a criminal lawyer with Newberger and Partners, LLP. Uh, Joe, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could jump in on this one. Oh, it's my pleasure. Listen, maybe let's uh, some elementary questions about this because I think a lot sure. of us have some uh, 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 misunderstandings about this, or maybe just not much knowledge about what happens in extradition hearings. Sure. Uh, first of all, the treaties uh, that are involved in this. Now, right. uh, uh, explain exactly why Canada was committed to actually do what the United States asked them to do. Well, Canada has, as does many other democracies across uh, the world, have bilateral treaties with various countries with respect to sharing of information for investigations as well as extradition treaties because it's quite common that a uh, individual from another country could commit a crime in another country and if they're there the um, the country wants to have them back in order to prosecute them so we have bilateral agreements with a number of countries in particular in this case the united states so it's an extradition treaty if a request is made what happens is the united states makes a request through their uh, foreign affairs department which goes to our foreign affairs department which then will be sent to our Department of Justice. And once there is sufficient material for an issue of a provisional warrant of arrest, the person in Canada who sought will be arrested and held. And then there are certain proceedings that begin. So our political and diplomatic obligations arise from this treaty that we have with the United States. And, and it's binding, then. In other words, you can't come back to the United States and say, whoa, whoa, that's a little too hot to handle. I don't think we want to get involved in that. Absolutely not. If we were to do that, then other countries could do that to us. And this is a this is a component of international relations between countries. And so we have these agreements in place for very specific purposes. And it is political and it's part of international relations. So we, we cannot deny this. We just have to go through the process. All right. The other one that, that keeps coming up, and every time we have a discussion about this on the program, uh, I'll get emails about this. What's What's taking them so long? I mean, she was arrested weeks ago now. Um, and, and, and I think a lot of us were expecting, well, okay, if it was a request from the Americans, they should start extradition hearings uh, or at least proceedings right away. Uh, they've got till the end of this month, I understand. Yeah, no, it, it, that's not unusual. You know, after the arrest, it's u- usually about 30 to 60 days for the United States to prepare and provide to our authorities what's called a statement of the case. And so that's a um, bundle of documents which is officially prepared, and that will be the evidence that they have to support the extradition. So they have to support some evidence for charges that would be applicable in the United States that would match charges in Canada. Now that takes usually about 30 to 60 days to get the statement of the case. 
yeah, that will then cause the defense lawyers to look at it. They may make additional requests for further clarification or information, and then eventually uh, an extradition hearing will be set. It's not unusual for the process to take about 9 to 12 months to get to an extradition hearing. Yeah, I, I tried to use a comparator. We had, I'm sure you remember the story about the uh, the hacker that uh, was uh, delving into things from Ancaster. Actually, I just right, uh, just looked right. up the hill from us, and and I think it took uh, seven or eight months, I think, for him to actually to go through extradition hearings. I guess he eventually waived it uh, to head down to San Francisco. So, uh, it, it, that's that's really just process then. It, it's really just process, and 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 information has to be provided, which is sufficient to justify a committal for extradition. And defense lawyers have a right to look at it, and review it, and ask for further documentation. And then there are discussions. And in the majority of cases, quite frankly, uh, fighting extradition is really um, a waste of money. As in that case, I remember giving commentary, and I thought really early on that he should just waive his right and go to the United States and defend himself there. But in this case, it's a little bit different um, because the charges are much more unique and there is a fairly high-level political game being played uh, in the background. Well, that's uh, why I, I think a lot of people were asking what took so long to do this, and I'm glad you explained that, because uh, a lot of folks are looking at this, well, they call it a delay, but if it's just normal process, I guess we have to characterize it in that fashion. But Canada's taken an awful lot of heat for this, and as a matter of fact, uh, what probably exacerbated that was when Trump decided, hey, I might intervene to break this up. Well, wait a second, your government asked for this. I mean, you, you're, right. a, you're a player here, and I think there was a, right. lot of, a lot of confusion as a result of that. Right. Canada should take absolutely no heat for uh, abiding by its international obligations. So they're doing everything they're supposed to do properly. Uh, this is not a matter that the PMO office should get involved in. And it's not our fault. We're just simply following an extradition request brought by the United States. If China wants to lay blame somewhere and they want to take any type of high-level negotiation or action, that is with the United States. They're the ones who made the request. If they have their own negotiations and have their own discussions, it may very well be that the United States could back off of the extradition request and abandon it, in which case the individual could then be released. Well, and that, and that's one of the things I think surprised an awful lot of people was that the Chinese angst was directed towards Canada initially uh, for making the arrest in the first place. But I mean, they, 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 these guys are international players too, Joe. They understand that the treaties are treaties. Yeah, but that's that's bullying, right? So yeah. when you have a big superpower, they're going to bully whoever they can to try and get what they want. And there's no doubt that they're a bully in the economic markets. They pay little attention to some extent about human rights and what other people say about it. They are aggressors when it comes to certain uh, issues in the uh, larger international community about uh, certain countries and supplying them with arms, etc. So China is a major player in a number of fields, and they bully themselves around. So the first place they thought they could bully would be Canada. Well, and we saw that with the two arrests, of course, uh, and those negotiations are ongoing. But to your point about the PMO shouldn't get involved, it's it's interesting to, to clarify that the negotiations that uh, that the prime minister's office and with Christia Freeland that uh, that have been ongoing uh, are not about this situation. It's about the two Canadians that have been detained. In other words, they're Correct. trying to do something about that. They're not even touching this. I agree. I think what they're doing in this instance is absolutely correct. The detention, the wrongful detention of Canadians in China, for absolutely no legitimate reason other than just uh, you know uh, retribution for what happened here, is something where we have to act on a political level, and sometimes it will require the PMO's office to get involved and maybe even the prime minister to some extent to say, you know, you can't do this. This is exceptionally bad and it's against international law. And sometimes you have to do that. 
Um, but they should not interf- interfere with a legitimate legal process in Canada where Canada is doing the right thing and responding to an extradition request from one of our extradition partners, in this case, the United States. Now, you mentioned uh, that the lawyers are, are on both sides of this are, are going through papers and preparing for this. There has to be a hearing, right? Yeah, it's called an extradition hearing. It's in front of a Superior Court judge. Um, and, you know, it, it could be a, a few days, depending upon the length of the evidence. There's very limited oral evidence, which is given. A lot of it is paperwork. Sometimes lawyers will file certain applications on behalf of their client, which are charter violations, but it's a very narrow scope of what's available in an extradition hearing because the law is very, very focused, and there's very limited charter rights which are available. So these hearings should not be very long, uh, you know, maybe a few days in this case. And then from the extradition hearing, if the judge determines that there is sufficient evidence for an extradition, then it goes to the political level, which is to the Department of Justice and the minister, who will then issue, if they determine that it's appropriate for extradition, then they'll issue a warrant uh, for extradition. And then from there, there's a right of appeal to the Provincial Court of Appeal. Now, this is obviously in a Canadian court, obviously, because that's yep. where the arrest was was made. Uh, would the fact that the, the treaty exists not be enough to simply say that justifies the extradition? Or I guess the, no. Okay, so they, they've got to present a case. Absolutely, because any country could ask for extradition, but if it's not lawfully based. Um, right now, this is a Chinese national, but imagine if it's a, a Canadian national that's wanted in the United States or some other country for a crime. You want to ensure that there is at least sufficient evidence uh, to establish that they should be extradited, because in certain instances, there may not be sufficient evidence, or there may be some overriding issues. Let's say it's a country with capital punishment. Um, there are things that need to be put into place and and. and evidence that needs to be tendered in order to establish the extradition is lawful and justified. And to that point, though, because, I mean, you've heard the speculation. Some people were wondering if, if the arrest was actually requested as a political chip, a bargaining chip, uh, because of the ongoing negotiations between the United States and China. I, I don't know if there's any proof of that, but, I mean, what would allay that, I guess, is the fact that you can't just use that now. Now you've got to present a case uh, so that yeah. they, they better have a body of evidence here. Yeah, they, they better. Uh, you know, I, I don't really know. You don't really know. You know, once the statement of the case comes out, if there's more information, we'll learn. Certainly there's enough innuendo and information about Huawei, the company, and about potential spying. In fact, in Canada, there's concern about, I think, they're, they're the ones to bring in the 5G network. Yeah. And now uh, the Canadian security is concerned about whether they should allow Huawei to do that or look for some other service provider, because it, it is the technology that they're bringing in uh, able to provide backdoor access for uh, the Chinese governments or companies in order to gain access to private information or corporate information and engage in espionage. So these are really real concerns, and none of us should pretend that this doesn't go on in the world uh, today. So uh, there may be some real meat to this. I don't know, and time will tell. Well, and and when you've got our, our intelligence partners in the Five Eyes saying, don't get in bed with these guys, I mean, that's something I think we should be paying attention to. Yeah, but again, we always have to reserve. It's so easy to disseminate information on social media and in media without having to make a, a true finding. And I think what we need to do is just reserve our judgment right now, see what the United States puts forward by way of evidence. The extradition hearing will be in a court, which is a public forum, and so there will be plenty of opportunity to gain that information. You know, subject to the fact that, you know, if the United States backs off the extradition, we'll never know what went on. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, is is it a slam dunk that extradition is granted uh, in situations like this? Or are there situations where, where the judge will say, no, I'm sorry, they're not going down there? In 99% of the cases that uh, I'm familiar with, 
extradition is almost a slam dunk. Um, and they deal with the typical criminal cases, homicide, sexual assault, many other things, pornography, uh, all sorts of stuff. Those tend to be a slam dunk, fraud. This is a bit different, and I am not clear on what evidence they have or they don't have. And if there are allegations of trying to subvert, I think this partly had to deal with um, subverting the ban uh, with Iran, Mm -hmm. and that there was a company set up, and somehow they had shares in that company, denied they did, but they were dealing with Iran. And so this is not the typical criminal case. It seems to be about sanctions placed on Iran and Huawei trying to move around it. That's what I heard. I'm not sure if this was some part of a fraudulent scheme, but it's much more complex uh, and much more intricate than your typical criminal case. Joe, how high do you have to set the bar here for the extradition hearing? Is it the same uh, level of burden of proof that they're going to have to prove in, in an actual trial? It's the same threshold, okay. uh, which is a very low threshold. It's the same that we have at a preliminary inquiry. And that is there sufficient evidence that a jury properly instructed would be in a position to render a verdict of guilty. But it's a low threshold. A judge on an extradition hearing does not judge the uh, credibility of the evidence which is presented. There's very limited weighing that the judge can do. So it's kind of like trying to straddle a baseboard. It's a low threshold. Huawei can, uh, I guess, rag the puck here if they want to, though, can't they? I mean, even after the hearing, if they get an unfavorable ruling, as you mentioned, they can appeal. So this, this may not be over anytime soon. No, they would, you know, uh, once it goes to the minister after that, they can appeal to the uh, Court of Appeal of B.C. and then from there to the Supreme Court of Canada if there's leave sought and there's justification for it. So it can work its way through a couple of years, absolutely. Uh, and, and that may or may not happen, we don't know. And at the same time, I guess, uh, once that hearing starts, uh, whose responsibility is, is the CFO? Is it still the Canadian government that made the arrest, or is it the United States? Sorry, I don't understand. Whose responsibility is... Uh, the, well, the, the the lady that was arrested, the, the Huawei CFO. Is, well, if, if there's a, if there's if they say yes, she has to be extradited. Right. Uh, she stays in Canada until all the appeals are exhausted. That's correct. She will remain here on a bail. Um, at certain levels, the bail may have to be extended, but she will remain in Canada under the terms that she has on her release. Once all appeals are exhausted, then she's extradited. Uh, instead of, uh, as I say, targeting some of their anger at, uh, at the Canadian government, as the Chinese clearly have done here, uh, I would think that the prudent thing to do at this stage would start the, the negotiations with the, the Americans about this, if, if in fact they're trying to do a, an end run around this and try to circumvent the process. Yeah, and, and that's legitimate. It's the United States who's making the demand. If they want to deal with this at a political level, and if there's more political play involved in this extradition request, then let the government talk. It's not the Canadian government that should be involved. We are just following due process and honoring the treaty that we have with the United States, as we would with any other country like Great Britain, et cetera, et cetera. Joe, I'm so glad you had some time to talk to us about this, because we've got so many questions about it, and and, uh, uh, you get little half-truths, I guess, in some of the reporting that's gone on on this, but I think we have a much clearer picture on this. Appreciate the time today. I I hope so. It's a complicated area, so I hope I help. Well, you've got the expertise, and I really appreciate you sharing it with us today. Thanks, Joe. My pleasure. Be well. Take care. You betcha. Joseph Newberger, criminal lawyer with uh, Newberger & Partners, LLP, who, by the way, uh, do an awful lot of work with extradition hearings, uh, which is why Joe has such a, a great level of expertise on this. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.